I just want to welcome everybody here tonight. Uh, my name is Carrie Baptist. This is Kathy Osebchuk. We would just like to thank all of our speakers and our chair for being here tonight, all of you. Uh, this event is sponsored by Urban at LSC. They've been exceedingly helpful, particularly their administrator, Anna Livingston, uh, Anna Johnson, <laughs> who helped us navigate all of the LSC bureaucracy. But we're very excited. I think we have a great panel of speakers. And uh, yeah. The hashtag for this event is hash visible cities. And just so you all know, it's going to be audio, visual, recorded, so it can be podcast later. Hey, so Carrie and I first started to become frustrated with some of the ways that the media was portraying cities um, in the global south when we were working for an NGO in India. Um, the NGO was based in Mumbai and it worked with urban poor communities on housing and sanitation issues. Um, so we began to see a gulf between what we read in the New York Times or even in local papers and what was um, happening on the ground. There were certain voices and narratives um, and solutions that were given disproportionate weight and this had potentially dire consequences for the people in the neighborhoods we were working in. Um, for example, there were numerous articles that didn't seriously questioned or even uh, blatantly promoted a plan that was going to demolish a neighborhood with a population the size of San Francisco. So our motivation for organizing tonight's event was to, um, came out of that frustration and our desire to start a conversation on that topic. So for the discussion tonight, we've made a point of bringing together a cross-disciplinary group of speakers, a varied audience, to engage on the ways in which non-Western cities are currently portrayed in the international media and to look for possible alternatives. Uh, the first panel will look at current portrayals and then the second panel will consider the alternatives. Uh, to introduce the first panel, I would like to quickly sketch out sort of a grounding example so that we have a concrete picture in all of our minds about what we're talking about here. The, common vocabularies, narrative frames, uh, yeah, the ways in which journalists commonly invoke non-Western cities currently. Uh, when I was looking for an example, it literally sort of fell into my lap in the sense that I was reading the Times of London at the weekend, and what do you know, this week, this month's Eureka magazine is on the rise of the megacities, quote unquote. Uh, and the centerpiece of the issue is a piece of long-form journalism on Lagos. Uh, so I'd just like to read you a few excerpts from that, uh, as I think it's a sort of this classic example of the vocabularies and narratives that are often evoked. So the author begins, uh, first the author is starting with a description of an area called Makoko in Lagos, which is he's using as a, as a way to sort of paint the picture of the context of the city. An African Venice, Makoko emphatically is not. The raw sewage of the slums 300,000 odd inhabitants pours into the water, which is so black and putrid and clogged with refuse that you could not see your hand an inch below the surface were you foolish enough to dip it in. The landward side of Makoko is a little better. Its alleys are strewn with garbage. Swarms of urchins dressed in rags or nothing share what little open space there is with pigs, goats, chickens, and feral dogs. Women hawk pathetic piles of tomatoes and peppers outside tiny huts in the West African heat. Welcome to our ghetto, they tell the rare white man who ventures in. 
Makoko is one of the dozens of slums in Lagos that accommodate perhaps two-thirds of the city's huge population, and it provides a nightmarish vision of the future of arguably the planet's fastest-growing major city, unquote. Okay. And then, in contrast, the Arthur gives us an equally reductionist portrait of the quote-unquote new Lagos in the form of the Echo-Atlantic development. Echo-Atlantic, Africa's Manhattan, a city within a city that will turn Lagos into Africa's financial hub and an international metropolis, or so its developers hope. They say it will have everything Lagos presently lacks, space, power, water, sanitation, state-of-the-art communications, upscale shopping. It will attract 250,000 inhabitants and 150,000 daily commuters, each of whom will employ cooks, cleaners, drivers, guards, and other staff, so the benefits will trickle downwards and outwards. As an image of New Lagos, this fast project can scarcely be bettered. Uh, really, I could go on with these excerpts. The article goes for several pages along these lines. And it's not written by some sort of random freelancer. It's written by the former foreign bureau chief of the Times. Uh, I think I've given you enough in those excerpts to give you a sense of the ways in which non-Western cities are conventionally invoked and some of the possible issues with that. Uh, we are given reductionist extremes, stereotypes, but no sense of the complexity of the city or of these spaces, let alone the spaces in between the extremes. And I believe that this raises some important questions for us to consider. What portrayals of cities do terms like Global South, slums, whether it's slums of hope, slums of misery, etc., or even seemingly positive vocabularies around things like glitter and high rises? What alternative visions do these terms preempt? And what questions or understandings are omitted in prevailing media narratives, the idea of the mega city or the slum city, the world class city, what have you? <laughs> so I'd now like to hand things over to our chair, Suzanne Hall, to bring us a little bit more deeply into some of these questions. Good evening, my name is Susie Hall. I'm an architect and an urban ethnographer and I write and I teach at LSE Cities. Um, thank you first to Katia and Carrie for their extremely impressive organization of what promises to be a, a really wonderful conversation between writers, academics, researchers and students. As Katia and Carrie have clarified, the event tonight really has two parts. The first focuses on the conventions and limitations of media practices currently, and the second looks at the alternatives and innovations in public modes of inquiry and portrayal. But at the core of both of these discussions is what this means for understanding cities, wherever we are in the world, through the complexities of geography, money, power, and above all else, people. I'm especially pleased to welcome our panelists, three of which are in front of you, and we have Scott and Jamal and Sue at the back. And I'm extremely delighted to say that amongst our panelists, we have some big personalities, and I'm told some firebrands even. Now, given that I am shy, retiring, and softly spoken, I've brought a piece of South African persuasion with me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any of you know what this is, but I'll demonstrate. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 Must be because it's got England written on the side. 
warm up with this. Um, I'll get it to warm up, and, I, and I'm going to use it to keep order if necessary, but also to indicate some wholehearted approval. Um, let me introduce our team on panel one. The first is Shakuntula Banaji, and she is a lecturer in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE. Her research interests include media literacy and South Asian media studies. Shaku is editor of South Asian Media Cultures and she's author of Reading Bollywood, which is reviewed as a brave book, brave in its range, exploring both personal and polit political aspects of Bollywood films. She's also the recipient of a Teaching Excellence Award, where one of her students enthused, Shaku's film class was incredible. Somehow, by exposing us to the world of cinema, Shaku made us think and reflect on our own countries and ourselves. And I hope uh, you're able to, to draw on that in, from our audience tonight. Fatima El Esawi is a visiting research fellow at POLIS, LSE, and a journalist and freelance analyst whose coverage is focused on the Middle East. Her recent article in Open Democracy entitled Did the Arab Spring Find Its Roots in New Iraq? is quite frankly a superb exposition on what gets lost in translation in the Western occupation of Iraq. And more specifically for us tonight, her article points to listening as a prerequisite for accurate translation, specifically listening to Arab voices in articulating the regional complexities of the Middle East. And then we have Vandana Desai, who is a senior lecturer in the geography department at Royal Holloway, and she conducts cross-disciplinary research on infrastructure and security, forms of tenure in slums, aging, livelihoods and poverty, and gender and development, and her regional focus is South Asia. Vandana is co-editor of two leading textbooks on development, including Doing Development Research and the Companion to Development Studies. Shaku, I, I welcome you to the stand and I ask you to start the proceedings. Thanks very much for coming this evening. It's absolutely wonderful to see a room full of people who aren't media studies students, since my media studies students have just finished their exams, though there are a few familiar faces here tonight. I see it today as a conversation, not just between the panelists and myself, but also between the audience and the panelists. So I imagine that as we go through the evening, you will hold in your heads pre-given examples of cities or film cities that you've seen, and I'm going to ask you to start by thinking of a film, your favorite film about New York, because everybody's seen a film about New York, or so the common wisdom goes. So I'm going to ask a few of the audience to tell me films that they can remember about New York before I start in on my big spiel about global cities. Who's got a film that they immediately can talk about. Any names spring to mind? Yes, go for it. Manhattan, Woody Allen. Manhattan, Woody Allen, and it has the name of the city in there. Anybody else? Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation, great. Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Any others? Armageddon. Armageddon. <laughs> okay, everybody's got a... 
Everybody's got a New York or America-centered city film that they can think of. But it isn't that common outside India and the South Asian diaspora for people to have a Bombay-centered film. But now, after 2008, almost everybody can say they've seen a Bombay-centered film. I started my interest in this through a piece of ethnographic audience research on transnational viewers of the film Slumdog Millionaire. And one of the questions I was asking about this film was, do you interpret the film through an anthropological or sociological lens? Do you interpret the film more because you think it's telling you something about the city Bombay and life in the global south than because you appreciate the story. And through my responses from audiences, a number of themes and issues arose, which I will just very quickly spin through in today's five-minute talk. So first off, the thing that sprung to mind was that a number of viewers categorized themselves as outsiders to the universe of the film. And those viewers, the audience people who had not visited India, had never been to Bombay, were thrilled and excited by this fast-moving journey that they felt they were being taken on through a new and unknown world. And interestingly, all of them referred to it as an accurate representation. So they saw a popular cultural text, a big film, Slumdog Millionaire, as a journalistic or even academic journey through a global city. And if I were to quote some of the things they said to me, the most interesting would be that we could experience all the dirt, the crime, and the danger without actually being touched by the beggars and the, and the pollution. That was, that was one of the comments, and there were many comments of that sort. And I can see people grimacing, but occasionally, occasionally when I've watched um, Hollywood films about very upper-class families in, in Manhattan, I'm interested in getting a glimpse into a different world, which I do not inhabit, which I never intend to visit, but which is nonetheless sociologically interesting. All it tells us is that all of us as viewers at one time or another incorporate popular culture into our imagining of the life around us. And hence, I'm going to make a claim today for popular film as a form of journalistic or even academic experience of other countries and other cities. And that really is the crux of what I want to argue. So if you look at, look at how Mumbai or Bombay has been represented in Bollywood films over the years, it has two extremes. One of them centers on crime, poverty, the sort of slick danger of, of um, cartels operating in the slums, terrorism, threats, danger, machismo, violence, and recent, more recently gangs and terrorism have been the center of this, with various cues about who the gangsters and the dangerous people are. And these are always coded in terms of class and location and religion in modern India. So these things do feed into people's popular imagining of who is the dangerous person, who is the villain, who's the threat. Moving on, you have the opposite representation. You have the opposite representation because Bollywood is very much about romance, and you've got all these films about cities as backdrops to people's intimate relationships and experiences of each other. And there is a tendency to focus on couples in spaces and spaces for couples. So those spaces in Mumbai, in Bombay, are extremely limited, and I've shown two of those spaces, train stations where you can meet unobserved 
and um, the coast or the beach where people meet unobserved because it's far away from their everyday lives. And these are represented time and time again, much more in the 1970s and 80s, but even today as a place of um, intimacy. If you take um, the other city I chose to focus on was Rio de Janeiro. If you look at the way it's represented in various different films, it is represented as a place of dreams and drama and adventure, but also as a place of gangs and violence. And I hope you're beginning to see some kind of similarity to the representation of Mumbai. It's also something which cues us to think about whether the city is central to the film or whether the city is simply a backdrop for the characters and people in the film. So is it actually acting as a character? Is the city, as Manhattan is in Manhattan, a character within the film where you actually think about the city? Or is it merely something that you forget about once the film has gone, gone by? Is it an aesthetic representation of the film? So is it about the beauty and the, the, the photography, the cinematography? Or is it about the sociological imagination? And I'm going to argue that much, much more attention has been paid in film studies and in journalism to the aesthetic aspect of these things. And very little is done to think about the effects and the, and the after image of the city in people's minds when a film is gone. So, coming back down to reality, in the everyday, it isn't all about crime and gangs, and this is what the insider audiences will tell you. So when I interviewed people who had actually inhabited these cities, they would tell you that, yes, of course, you know, there are places like this, and some of them live in slums themselves, but these places aren't full of crime and danger all the time. They are full of poverty, and there are also in-between spaces, boring, mundane spaces that you travel through all the time on your daily commute. They look like this. To people who come from upper-middle-class districts, either in Mumbai or in Manhattan, these places look like slums, but they're not. They're just high-rise buildings built at a time when that's the way in which architecture made the city look, and they're rather drab and dreary. The extremes of wealth and poverty which inhabit the film universe are not actually people's everyday experience. And I want to finish with a, a little link to the next speaker because it's interesting how the news focuses on some cities as places of protest, other cities as places of glamour and romance, and yet other cities as places of crime and danger. And then those labels stick, they don't move away. And so what's excluded? And that's the part of my talk which is about invisible cities. What is excluded are the, are the places where cities are all of these things at the same time. You've got the romantic couples, you've got the protest movements, you've got the people doing cultural activities, you've got struggles between men and women going on which are completely out of the limelight. And I like this news item because it actually talks about a city, Egypt's activists in Tahrir Square, using film, setting up cameras in city spaces to show films about something completely different. So in a way it brings the city and film together in a way which goes outside of this very orientalist imagining and imagine, imagination. It's all about solidarity, it's all about revolution, but it isn't framed by the media. It's people doing things with media. Thank you very much.
Hi, I, I tried today to talk about the representation of Arab cities, especially with the outbreak of the so-called Arab Spring. So traditionally, Arab cities are represented by two extreme images. The city of suffering, conflict, and, and destruction, with the leading example of Gaza, the Palestinian city, and the city of wealth and prosperity and money with the leading example of Dubai, the Gulf city of uh, Dubai. In both of the two situations, the media narrative is very simple and simplifying. So it is the version of the romantic, the rich, the glamorous, as opposed to the poor, the shattered, uh, cities under attack, destroyed, burned, the city of poverty, and sometimes the city of extremism. But beyond this uh, cliché, there are lots of other stories which are usually ignored uh, by media. Uh, for example, um, which do you consider more attractive, a story of a financial conference uh, being held uh, in Dubai or a report about the plight of Asian uh, workers in Dubai, women's rights in, in Gulf, uh, human rights in Bahrain, for example, uh, as opposed also to the very stereotyped story about Gaza, which is Gaza under attack and Gaza the extremism. But how about the education in Gaza, the economy? Uh, in Gaza, love stories in, in Gaza, personal uh, struggles uh, going on every day in Gaza, ambitious people, careers, uh, all these stories are just in ignored by uh, media, which is usually attracted to an event that should be, by definition, dramatic and, by preference, uh, violent. Uh, with the outbreak of the so-called Arab Spring, the representation of Arab cities are, uh, is narrowed down to specific places. These places are acquiring a very symbolic metaphor uh, with a leading example of the Tahrir Square in Cairo and the Bourguiba uh, Avenue in, in downtown uh, Tunis. And uh, the meaning of this place is very strong, it's very symbolic because it reflects the fight for Arab people, for Tunisian, Egyptian, and other, for freedom of expression, democracy, human rights. For long decades, Arab people could not demonstrate in streets, and still till now, they are not able, and in many places, they are just sacrificing their life for this freedom of expression. So it's highly uh, uh, symbolic. And we are also witnessing symbolic forms of protest linked to these cities, to square plazas, downtown streets. Like, for example, self-immolation. Uh, it's usually in the street, and it's not in, in houses, or it's under the media uh, coverage, and openly in a, in a very famous street. Um, I can give you an example, a recent example was um, Tunisian went to street to demonstrate in Bourguiba Avenue and it's uh, translated into confrontation between different opposing groups. So the new government decided to forbid people from demonstrating in Bourguiba Avenue. The next day, thousands went to the same street with the same message, if we want to demonstrate, this should be in Bourguiba Avenue and not in any 
other place in the city because this is the symbol of our revolution. And the Tunisian government had to abolish his decision and allow again people to demonstrate because it's just impossible to forbid them to go to this specific uh, uh, place. But again, for media, the place it should be always linked to an event and to a dramatic event. To give you a simple example, uh, the violent repression of Coptic demonstrations near Maspiro uh, building, which is a building of the national TV in Cairo, had a huge coverage by uh, the media. Definitely, it's a very important event. It's violent, it's related to the Coptic rights and other, other issues. But again, uh, the coverage of the daily life in Tahrir Square, how this revolution, how this uh, uh, setting was prepared, uh, mothers coming every day, bringing food to people in this place, how many coverage of this is really very little. We need a very strong, very violent event, and the place is again the center uh, of, of uh, the media coverage, which is uh, uh, encouraging this trend, the fact that protests itself are uh, having a kind of performative and drama uh, character. Protesters are uh, trying to adopt the media style in their way to frame themselves, their life and their protest. So they are not anymore waiting for international media to come because in some places like Syria, international media cannot come. They are themselves framing now the story and sending it through social media and uh, uh, YouTube. If, if you are watching and or you are uh, monitoring uh, social media faces for Syrian uh, protests, you can see that how they are really using social media in framing their stories. Uh, for example, at, in some places, some rural places in Syria, demonstrators decided to use narrow places, narrow streets to demonstrate simply because when you demonstrate in a narrow street, then the image you reflect is huge number of people in a very narrow place. If the same number of people, you put them in a big place, then the image is totally different. And which is really amazing in this YouTube I, uh, I monitor every day, is the stories where mothers and uh, fathers are telling the stories, are filming the death of their sons. So you see a mother, talking to, to the camera of uh, the mobile phone of, uh, in the hospital uh, while her son is dying or uh, died before a few, few hours or few minutes. And she's saying, look, this is what Bashar al-Assad did to our families. We want revenge. We want the international community. But she's a mother. I mean, we don't see her crying her son anymore. She's much more playing the role of a reporter and a mother in the same time, adopting the style of a reporter who could be in this place talking uh, about the event. Few, only a few points about the coverage of international uh, media, which is very much focused on what, what is going on. Their definition of uh, the event, which should be hard news, which should be also violent and dramatic. They ignored a very important aspect, which is the why. What happened? Why we are witnessing now people who can finally break the wall of fear, go out, demonstrate, ask for their rights, and risk their lives, while for decades, so people maybe they wasn't silent, but we did not hear about them, and suddenly we are hearing uh, about them. And what they are also ignoring is to link the present to the past. 
For instance, in both Tunisia and Syria, and maybe in other places, uh, the protest broke out in rural areas, and then they spread to the center. What is the story of this rural area? What is the, what is the relationship with the rural areas and the center? What is the relationship between population of these rural areas and, and uh, the central power in these cities? All these questions are uh, uh, ignored. Um, unfortunately, the debate in international media now, uh, I'm not talking here about field investigation, but the debate in TV platform is very much also simplified into the simple question, the good against the bad, the uh, 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 kind of obsession with Islamism uh, against secularism. So uh, whenever we are invited to a platform or you are watching a platform about the Arab Spring, it would be the same question, who will win? Uh, will we have Islamist uh, uh, government coming? How about secularism? How about uh, uh, women's rights? And again, uh, it's simplifying a very complex story. I just will end with limitation of media operation, which first, there are lots of things going on. They don't have time to reflect as we are doing here and to think. They don't have enough resources. The field investigation is costly and it's very dangerous in some places. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I don't know what I would follow after the two speakers have already made interesting points on it. Could I sort of recap on some of those things and probably add a few more um, that come through my own research? Um, I really started getting interested in a representation of cities after the film Slumdog Millionaire. Not unlike Shaku, who's already into media studies and media theory, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, I've been born and brought up in this city, and I, I was really sort of um, desperate, um, anguish, you know, anger, all sorts of emotions, you know, from, yes, it's nice to see a film on Mumbai, but on the other hand, you know, really upset at the way it's been portrayed. Um, but on the other hand, living in London, you were seeing all the media euphoria on you know, the BAFTAs and the Oscars and, uh, for the film, and, and also, you know, the Jubilant, um um, you know, characterization of you know, how cinematically it was great and how educational it was and so on. So you're getting this very contrasting sort of reviews from both from, from my homeland plus plus here while, while living living in the city. Also in Mumbai, one of the things that happened in Mumbai, and I think Shaku will probably also talk about it a bit later, is that it wasn't just the film Slumdog Millionaire, but it was also the time when um, you know we had the Booker Prize um, winning book, uh, you know, uh, Arinda Adiga's book, The White Tiger. Uh, then you had the Suketa Mehta's book, Maximum City. And all these were really sort of internationally, you know, acclaimed books. Suddenly, you know, White Tiger sold millions of copies, and suddenly you know, you're talking about this driver in New Delhi and, and the life of a poor person in New Delhi and how he, he um, works for the middle class and the, you know, the, the different facets of, of the working for a middle class family in New Delhi. Um, and and it, it sort of continually brought home uh, how, how the cities are represented, how they are portrayed, how especially the marginalized group, the poor people, are being talked about in these films. But I've also been living in London, I constantly been and working in development studies as such. Constantly I got questions asked about the film, you know, 
as Jacko said, oh yes, you know, yeah, is this really real? You know, is this really accurate? But also about you know, um, you know, the dangers, the violence. Uh, one one person who is actually an academic said, oh, I don't think I'll ever go to Mumbai again. You know? um, so sort of those sorts of reactionary uh, quotes in itself. And the thing that came to my mind was that, of course, all these things together, if you look at the holistic, you know, the, the books, the films, and, and the, the media, um, you know, it's portraying an identity of a city, you know, the national identity, the ethnic identity of these urban poor people. And so, again, it gets constantly stereotyped into this image. But one of my basic argument in this is, how does it get embedded in people's memory? Um, yeah, Dog Millionaire was not just the film which, which portrayed slums. There was City of Joy, you had Salam Bombay from Iran a couple of years ago, which also concentrated on street children. Um, you had Satyajit Ray, who did the Upper Trilogy, which was a, you know, a, a three series of films on, on famines in India, really looking at abject poverty in Bengal. Uh, so, you know, does it mean that you know, we, we always attracted? Um, to what, what poverty is like, or are we, you know, is it that poverty sells better in Western media? Is it, is it that when it gets these Oscars and BAFTAs and so on that we suddenly draw attention to it? So perhaps poverty does sell, and perhaps film directors, uh, you know, like Danny Boyle, who's also bought the, the rights for the Sukita Matters for Maximum City, um, were, were perhaps are attracted to looking at this vibrancy of the city, you know, perhaps you know, the Western cities no longer provided, and so cities like Mumbai perhaps provide those sorts of extremity and the violence, and so perhaps filmmaking is very much based on looking at this very uh, extreme view, the exotism of, of this land uh, that exists. And again, this goes back to the, to the debate of Orientalism, of how do you portray the other? And the portrayal of the other is very much, still very much based on the stereotypical images. You know, we still like watching Shepard did show one of the pictures of the Victoria Terminus in Mumbai, the stations, the markets, uh, you know, the events like, like the, the bomb explosion recently in, in, in India and in Mumbai. Um, so again, um, these stereotypical images seem to be, uh, you know, being portrayed again and again and used again and again in films, you know, the heaps of garbage in, in both the street children films. They're reliant on sort of the socio-religious um, practices, and, you know, pre presented in a very spectacular way to signify the place. You know. I still get annoyed when I see um, snake charmers in films. You know, I, I saw it in Indiana Jones and the Doom you know, in the 1970s, and I still see it being portrayed in, in, in the 21st century. And I think, have you not moved on? You know, are we still portraying the same things about India? Um, you know, it also means that you know we're always constantly looking at negative labels rather than positive labels of the city. You know, why doesn't somebody talk about the vibrancy of the city? Why doesn't somebody talk about the informal sector which fuels the global economy? Why doesn't people talk about the entrepreneurships of slum dwellers, the spirit of activism, the humanity, the spirit of humanity that exists within slums? You know, the, a lot of a lot of them provide you know um, 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 various. Um, you know, daily early wage labor to making goods that we use on an everyday life. You know, like an accessorize, we see all those be you know bin work that is being done on blouses and scarves and so on. And I know all the slum ladies who are you know sort of sitting there, weaving away day and night, and these these pieces of shawls and cloths that are sold you know, sold in London. 
So why are we not talking about the emerging lower middle class and their vibrancy and the vibrant economies that are in, in Mumbai or Rio de Janeiro or in Cape Town and how, how that is having an influence on the cultural change, the consumption that's been going on in itself. So um, I'd like to sort of think about how how damaged in some sense we have been with the portrayal that has gone on in the past and how it is stuck unintentionally in our memories in itself and how colored our memories become with the view that we have had. And if you think about, um, about films and, and TV serials that have been in um, you know, about India, and I was trying to think this morning and I sort of started making a list with Jewel in the Crown, um, The Far Pavilion, uh, Gandhi, City of Joy, Heat and Dust, Passage to India, Bride and Prejudice, all related to India, all on, you know, more or less talking some of the same issues again and again, and portrayed in the same similar manner in itself. Um, the question then that comes is, um, how do people then depict it in their own life? How do they then form images? How does attitudes get formed amongst people for particular social groups? You know, that would be some interesting research to do. You know, what sort of attitude formation does take place about slum dwellers now after having seen the film Slum Millionaire in itself? What sort of image that has always been embedded in the Western audience's mind in itself? So this this colored image, can we ever you know, remove it or will it always remain stagnant in itself? The other question is about, uh, does it really raise awareness? You know, does it really raise awareness of the in-depth problem that exists about slum housing and about the livelihoods that people, 40% of the city people have? Or rather, it is just a kind of creative imaginations which we like to visit. And the quote I thought Shaku made was very good, is that you, know, you, you, you can taste everything without actually stepping into Mumbai in itself. So, um, um, you know, in, in, in the sense of this, the, you know, the whole portrayal has also another positive impact, and i just like to draw two minutes on that. Uh, one is that because I work with the NGO sector and I've been working with it over a long period of time, I see a lot of inform informal information. I mean, Slumdome Millionaire, one of the things that really happened to Mumbai is a lot of the NGOs received a lot of money. You know, NGOs like Railway Children here, you know, um, um, Hope Foundation were constantly advertising. Like I think, you know, Gareth was just telling me about Plan International having a little sheet of page in an advertisement about about uh, about you know sending money for to to issues related to orphans and street children and etc. A similar impact was with Salam uh, Bombay in 1998. Uh, so, you know, NGOs, you know, for a short period of time did receive a lot of money. So that was something, something quite, uh, quite beneficial in financial terms. But it also made development a fashionable development. So we suddenly saw street children like a fashionable commodity. We suddenly had all this money going in for one particular clause when there were so many other clauses which also needed an equal amount of money in itself. Um, you know, there are issues of, you know, there's new industries like slum tourism in Mumbai, you know, which have benefited in itself, um, you know, where you can have a tour around Dharavi slum in, it, uh, in, in Mumbai. So, um, you know, there were some positive things. Maybe I'll, I'll talk about some of those things later in itself. But what it does mean is that there is an imbalance of information flows. Despite the internet and all the new more concept we have got, the information flow is still from the West to the wider audience and not from the South. I mean, one of the questions that was raised a lot after Slumdog Millionaire in Mumbai was, would Slumdog Millionaire have been so popular if it was made by an Indian? 
Um, and was it that when the Westerners do it, they sell port, uh, port upon much more better than what the Indians have been able to sell it in the past? You know? so, um, so it forces us to rethink um, you know, the global map of cultural consumption and the challenges and assumptions that we have. Thank you. Sorry, Thank you very much. I have three questions, which in a way are mu as much questions for our panellists as they are for the floor. And I'm going to sort of start them back to front in terms of the, the contributions that you've made. But the first question, and I guess this is a Vandana question, is how do we get beyond a very singular or pure or even geographically static notation of cities? And how can we move much more towards kind of regional complexes or interrelationships or cultural sharings that go on be between cities. So I travel frequently between Cape Town and London, and my research in London is on the Walworth Road and, and Peckham Rye Lane. And I'm often struck that there are pieces of London, prestigious pieces, pieces of the city, that are far closer to Cape Town um, than to Paris or New York, and equally there are pieces of, of the Cape Flats that have quite explicit relationships with the Walworth Road or Peckham Rye Lane. So, you know, if we, if we begin to think about notions of vibrancy, how can we begin to think much more about interrelationships rather than London as, as a pure London or Mumbai as a pure Mumbai? The second question, and I, and I guess this attends very much to Fatima's talk, is the question of how to validate the individual. And this is not simply about recognizing the individual, but how do we give them legitimacy? So. When we, when we see a mother speaking in the instant on the death of her son, does that truth have a lesser claim to truth than if the story is put forward to us through The Guardian or, or any other media outlet, for example? So which truths have a, have a bigger claim and, and, and does social media possibly have a role in, in counteracting that? And then the, the third question, I guess, for Shaku, is, is the question of of the very real constraint of media, that it has a very brief <coughs> hold on our attention. It's the image, the headline, the two-minute grasp of essence. And I guess for me this is a question, as someone who's very concerned with making images, of how to condense rather than abbreviate. How can you get a real compact complexity into a singular articulation without oversimplifying? Um, so if we, could, if, we, we, if we could open those three questions up both to yourselves and to the floor, that would be great. Would any of you like to start? I'm always happy to talk. <laughs> so I'll just open with, before answering your question, open with a thought that came into my head when, when I was presenting, which was very much that actually we don't necessarily agree in our outlook on how we represented Western and non-Western media because what I was trying to say was that here you have this huge big cinema, Bollywood, and it's a chance, and so here's my answer to your question, it's a chance to, in 900 films released every year, to do something about these representations. And instead of doing something about these representations or contradicting them or changing something, it's reproducing all those same patterns that you were talking about the Western media having. So if there are five films released in a decade about um, you know, a global city in the global south by Hollywood, 
there are 500 films released from our own cinemas, from Nollywood, Nigerian cinema, and Bollywood and Nollywood from Pakistan. And they reproduce these same um, stereotypes and contrasts and binaries. And the question is not, how do you condense complexity into a singular articulation? The question is why, when there are so many articulations, there are not more diverse and interesting and imaginative representations of these cities. And that is a question for us as journalists and filmmakers and academics. Why are so many academic books written about the same aspects of cities? Why are so many people researching the same aspect Twitter revolutions rather than looking at other aspects? Why do we congregate like sheep into these binary oppositions? So I suppose I turn the question back to you. Would anyone from the floor like to have a go at that? Sadie. If you have a mic, so please wait for it. We just have one. Got a loud voice. Oh, but it's being recorded. Yeah, so please pass it down. Um, yes. Thanks very much. Um, this were, um, I think all, all the speakers did very well um, deconstructing these stereotypes that keep perpetuating themselves. Um, and you've all pointed out in different ways um, these kinds of um, power asymmetries. Um, the radicalization of the portrayal of cities in the south, the centralization of the um, these binary constructs, they all, they all really speak to these, to these <coughs> same issues. Um, but I, I'd, like to, I'd like to put something different um, to the floor. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little provocative. I'd like to perhaps just turn around um, the discourse a little bit because when we talk about, of course, the visible city is, of course, um, the visible, what's, what, what the media portrays. But um, it kind of begs the question, what is, what is invisible here? And that's and that's the, the, the international city, which is really the city of the West. That's, that's really what we mean by it here. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know why, if um, for the richness um, that comes out of, out of the cities of the South, why these, why these um, representations uh, perpetuate themselves. And um, I think it, it may have something to do with um, what it says back to the West. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about what, what the speakers think about that because either or, whichever way it's coming from, it's this, it's this gaze towards the periphery. Um, so I'm thinking the way, the, way, the way these aspects about, you know, the, the South as being something that um, um, takes us back to some kind of um, um, essential character of ourselves, some kind of connecting us back to the, to the earth, to our sensuality, to, you know, that, that the city of the south is something on the move, you know, it's a city of despair or hope, but it's never, um, it's, it's, it's never actually reached, reached any, any, any end point, the way, the way London has, the way New York has, it's something forever, it's Rome, it's Paris. Um, so, so this is something that this, the southern city is, it's always in a state of becoming, becoming uh, so I'm, I'm curious to know what 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 the speakers would have to say about. We'll take a few more questions and then we can have some responses. You see, I'm just wondering. Uh, I was born in Bombay, 
So I know intimately some of the Dharavis and all. The, I haven't seen much uh, like people living in municipal chores, you see, there are in Bombay. Uh, their ideas, or uh, if you see our flats, for instance, like uh, Iranian film visit the separation, for instance, uh, or the Gulbenkian buildings in Cairo, uh, sort of a parallel lives, uh, how they behave and how they live. Uh, there isn't much. Uh, ideas given, you see, on the question of uh, what you see the Bollywood, you see the palaces or very rich uh, uh, in Bandra or whatever, Pali Hill, you see the uh, making on stage. Uh, it does not give a real feel of the city behind cities, yes, right. And I wonder whether uh, we, we come out of, for instance, like Saturday Trace, where villages are portrayed in Apotriology and uh, the life of a teacher, uh, life of a uh, the, uh, religious person, and the superstition as such, which is uh, such a past master to some extent. Bergman might do it in different ways as such. Uh, but uh, there isn't any uh, visible city which goes into invisible places, you see, and shows the life led by the ordinary people. Let's take one more and then we can have some response. So all three questions are really around notions of portrayal, whether it's diversity, invisibility, and ordinariness, or reflecting back to the West. Would, would one of you like to respond? Yeah, um, I mean, to start with the last question first, I mean, how many people have seen the Ubi God? How many people have seen Slumdog Millionaire? That answers the question in some sense. I think there's so many other regional films, which also picks up on some Susan's, Susan's uh, question, but which really pick up on some of the 
complexities of ordinary family lives in these slums, 47 and Sporad, villages and so on. But they don't, re don't receive that sort of media attention. And I think because they don't receive the media attention, they, they do not sort of in some sense stay in people's minds as well. And I think th this is, this is a, the issue with, with sort of having this sort of big, giant um, sort of media portrayals with Slumdog Millionaire or, or books like uh, you know, The White Tiger and so on, which, which really then stick into the memory of people. And that was the point I was trying to make. But there are these complexities. And there's also a lot of comparison, and I agree with Susan about you know, the things that are happening in some parts of London are very similar to what I do, or to what has happened in some parts of Mumbai. The widening gaps between the rich and the poor in, in London, as well as in Mumbai, is, is, is very similar to many cities in Canada, Cape Town, and there are loads of parallels that take place. But would making a film or, or writing a book on those issues become as glamorous? And I think you know that's the other issue in, in media portrayals is that that the media only picks up on things that they think that can sell. And that was one of the points that I was making. That perhaps some of these issues would sell. Um, uh, Deepa Mehta made this film Water, which mm -hmm. is a very interesting film on widowhood and, and really picks up on some of the sociological issues in itself. That film would not even be filmed in India. <laughs> it had to be filmed in Sri Lanka, um, and, and it just shows, you know, it just shows, you know, some of the complexities also within filmmaking and how that has an, an uh, um, a, a complex dynamics with our attitude formation as well. I would I would very briefly like to give Fatima a chance to respond because I'd I'd also like to slightly shift it away from film for a minute mm -hmm. okay. um, and back to the to other forms of press. To your question about uh, individuality, and um, I just want to to say that the all the uprising is the Arab world were first an expression of individuality because for long decades the political life was about hatred to America, American policies, uh, Israeli-Palestinian struggle. So it was less about democracy, less about human rights. And the protests were focus, focused about our rights as individuals. Unfortunately, I think now we are losing this momentum. And these protests are turning to be much more linked to the conventional um, representation of uh, politics in the region, which are a struggle between regional powers, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Israel. And it's less and less about individuality and individual uh, rights. And I do agree with you, the power of social media is it, it gives individuals the opportunity to present themselves and to frame their stories and to talk about themselves which traditional media was unable to do with, with such complex uh, struggle going on. But um, there is a kind of media fatigue now, uh, even within, in the social media scene, with the fact that the, the nature of protest itself is turning from issues of democracy and human rights and others to be much more linked to the uh, traditional um, thr political struggles in the region. Thank you. We, I know we had a few more questions from the floor. I know you were right, bursting to. Well, I'm, si I'm sitting in the same seat as one of the predecessors. So that doesn't discount me. Um, I'm Shara Ali from the London School of Philosophy. I'm a bit of an infiltrator here. Um, I wonder whether we're getting overly hung up on stereotyping 
I, I know that uh, there's a case for being concerned. But at the end of the day, um, we're in a democracy. People are free, it's a form of free speech actually, to make a representation about the place that they find themselves in or want to film in terms of a narrative. So it's also a form of entertainment. Hollywood tends to be focused on exporting the American dream and we even get a bit of the American dream towards the end of uh, Slumdog Millionaire. But I think the main point is that aren't we diminishing or downgrading the role that the individual has to play in interrogating the assumptions of the movie and reflecting on um, the way things are being perceived. So they have a responsibility as individuals to reflect on that and I think that it's, as really been mentioned there's plenty of opportunity through social media for people to um, review uh, counter hypotheses or whatever and there is really no such thing as an objective standpoint uh, on the universe or on a city it is a representation generally speaking I would suggest that the city is uh, playing the part of a character even in Hollywood movies like uh, I suppose Crash with race relations in LA I think that does a pretty good job it's a narrative and it takes place in the city of LA so um, really just the point is that why are we getting so hung up and what is our solution if we do think that we're going to rail against the world for producing these stereotypical images I think that really we're co-responsible for that you know in terms of the um, pre the, the context in which we find ourselves but also we have a responsibility as well to uh, debate it as we're doing here and to make our alternative standpoints and visions clear Let's take two more questions at the back. Uh, just, just trying to move this uh, discussion, as you suggested, towards the uh, towards print uh, and how print um, perhaps portrays images. And I would, I would ask the question: What's different between print and media, apart from the visual element uh, in it? And I was thinking of whether the fact that a film is set in a city but is, has got a storyline, has got a message it wants to send out too, is actually representing the city or it's representing the story in which it's placed. So I'm thinking of, for example, Royton Mystery Tales from Ferozabag, which talks about life in a particular location in Mumbai, but it's based on what is happening within that. And I think it, it, it comes to the question um, uh, kind of linked to the last speaker, which is why does it matter if a film is seen by a less number of people and what do we mean, how do we understand people's understanding of films which are so-called popular uh, in, in nature and I, and I put it to the panel if you got together, three of you and wanted to produce a film what would it be about? I'm sure you wouldn't agree amongst yourselves and the question is whether it will be shown so I think we come back to this kind of notion of even academic writing and why it goes in a certain direction is the kind of publisher perish argument, and I think for producers it's make money or perish. Right, one more question. Just, just to kind of hold the thought, I think that there's a real distinction that needs to be made between popularity and endurance. Things that really locate in our imagination this year and next, and maybe the next, and things that kind of locate in our long-term cultural imagination 20 years hence. Third question. Hi, I've got the microphone, so I might as well speak. Um, I, I wanted to ask about print as well, because I think it, it, it's really interesting. There's obviously much to criticise in the way that these cities are portrayed in, in the Western print media, but I think there's also an argument to be made that perhaps the problem isn't just the print media, it's actually the people who are consuming the print media. And what strikes me is that the kind of journalism that you're talking about as 
kind of the gold standard, which is things that looks at subtle issues, you know, sociological issues, and, and you know, areas of conflict and disagreement. That's actually the journalism that's most under threat at the moment, because that's the journalism that relies on correspondents who are able to stay in countries for long enough to get a good understanding of them. It relies on being able to actually work with people who live in those cities and work with them to get their messages out. And given that's the journalism that's most under threat, because it's the journalism that the print media hasn't found a way to pay for, isn't there a chance that actually by, by saying, well, there's much to criticise in that media, but there's also much there that's good, and that's perhaps what we're going to lose first. So I'd be interested in the panel's views on, I suppose, firstly, ways that that can be, that can be corrected, but also, you know, is that something that we should be worrying about first before necessarily we start going for, you know, even more sort of subtle and, you know, uh, careful forms of reporting? Shouldn't we try and protect the stuff we've already got that's getting messages out there that wouldn't otherwise be heard? Could I just desperately jump in for one minute? I think there's, there's two distinctions. There's one in terms of audiences and there's one in terms of what, what thrives in contemporary press. And I just think we need to bring back into the room that the one thing that is under threat, thankfully, is the aristocracy, the current aristocracy in the media. Um, and the absolute glib ways they've gone about not necessarily focusing on the things that matter, but on the, the incidentals. Um, and I think one of the things that would be um, very necessary in, in a conceptualizing a new form of media, and I know this is very much part of the second panel, but is to precisely work with people who live and deal with the stuff of, of reality, violence, inequalities in those worlds, that we actually get a grounded expertise and that we get past this notion of a, of a Western aristocracy that flies in and, and flies out and delivers expertise and, and constructs truths which unfortunately I don't think the public are always able to disassemble because of the forms that they, they get delivered in as, as legitimized, authorized, officiated, and absolutely prominent. Um, but as chair, I shouldn't be ready. Um, <laughs> let me hand over. Can I jump in and answer the first two questions in this part? Firstly, to say, if you hadn't asked them, I would have asked them. My whole field of study is popular media, and I absolutely can't bear people who just say, oh, it's, it's all dreadful, it's so, you know, it's full of stereotypes and cliches, why, why should you be looking at such a dreadful thing? I think it's, it's full of exciting possibilities, it's full of imaginaries, that's why I study it. And um, to answer your question about um, London, London is represented in all kinds of different ways in films, equally, um, equally um, excitingly or exotically as the global south. But actually getting to the point of audiences are active, they, it's their responsibility, why does representation matter? I mean, I've been there in my research. Eight years ago I thought, well, why does representation matter? Because we're all, um, we're all cosmopolitan post-colonial subjects who can do whatever we like with media, right? <laughs> Absolutely bloody wrong. I'm up in a tiny village in the Himalayas talking to children about their media consumption, and this really is a tiny village, and I'm asking them, what do you watch? And they watch things about middle-class urban families living in palaces, making sacrifices for their mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law. These are six-year-old, seven-year-old children who go up and spend eight hours walking to and from school in the snow to spend two hours at school where they go to eat their meal. Is there any media in the world which represents them as having an emotional or psychological life? If you spent your entire childhood waiting for a representation of yourself in any medium, books, stories, 
textbooks, television news, anywhere. Would you be asking, does representation matter? So I think representation matters for various reasons, and not always bad reasons. It matters because it's enjoyable and exciting and people take things away from it. It matters because that excitement means that when you link that to repeated assumptions about the sociological <coughs> value of a popular film or popular film images, you are taking something away which you will then act on in your daily life. And three, it matters because if you're not represented ever in any way, then you grow up with a missing dimension. It is a missing dimension. I mean, you all go and you watch films about cosmopolitan cities, you recognize yourselves there. Even, even marginally, you recognize yourselves there. If there are people who never recognize themselves ever in any medium, written, print, text, whatever, visual, then it matters. That we could come to the 21st century, we could have all this social media Somebody said some horrendous figure of terabytes and kilobytes of data flying around in the social media sphere. And there are still people who never have any access to that in any way, imaginary or otherwise. Doesn't it matter? And shouldn't we be trying to add more diversity to that sphere? Not just saying, well, the audience will interpret in their own way. Seems too simple to me. Um, the distinction between audience and journalist is, is an interesting one in itself because um, you know who are the people who are journalists or people who have access to all these different information flows um, and these are also people who are you know educated from a particular class from a particular and have this very you know very again you know, sort of image of what they want to portray. And I think, again, that class divide is also there in the way the press sort of articulates it, you know, in every way, maybe in London or maybe in Mumbai, and I think it's the same. Um, does the audience have the democratic power to expect something different? Yes, they do. But can we really ever demand it and we do we really get it? No, it doesn't in reality happen. So I think there's, again, that sort of friction that exists in, you know, in, in print in itself, you know, or, or even in films, you know, people who make films and people, you know, what are the types of directors who want to make those films? Um, you know, Shepard made this point earlier, you know, 900 films from Bollywood, you know, why are those films not portraying some of these issues? Isn't it? They could always take it. There are, I mean, um, I spend a lot of time in Pune, where it has a film institute in India, and which produces a lot of short films on various complex issues, but they never get aired. Uh, they never get shown you know, around in the world. You know, um, and regional films, which have got you know on various issues, which have been actually far more powerful in the Indian context recently, which have not, you know, which, which are never exposed. I mean, some go to Times Festival, uh, even get awards, but never even get the, get the media exposure to it. So again, again you know, what we choose to see is also something that we as audiences are perhaps not educated enough to, to make those distinctions about other cities. We can make that about our own cities, but somehow we then block it when it comes to mm -hmm. other cities. I'd like to give Fatima the last word before we close the first panel. It's just a brief comment on your comment, which is, do I agree, investigative uh, reporting is not only being few, it's being a luxury, and unfortunately helped with the fact that with social media we can get fabulous material while we are in our offices. And any reporter, investigative reporter, cannot access very important 
documents such as provided by channels like WikiLeaks. So the idea of the reporter going to discover the truth and to bring the big story and spend hours it's not really now with the reality of industry very much relevant, unfortunately. Thank you all very much for a great first round of discussion. We will be starting our second round of discussion at 8 o'clock. And I believe there are drinks and a few bites to eat outside. So if, if we could be back promptly by 8, and if you could join me in thanking our panelists. Thank <laughs> you. 
democratise the access to the and that's it. It's a clear, it's a clear
wonderful Stockton. Oh, one great. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm. Yeah. No, but it's only 15.
van a repetir. Pero Hello there. Hi. Um, I'm Katya, one of the organizers of tonight's event. And our first panel this evening focused on what's missing in dominant media portrayals of non-Western cities. But figuring out ways to do a better job of reporting, as some people brought up, is at least as important as diagnosing the problem. So our next panelists will consider mainly two questions. Firstly, what alternative understandings of non-Western cities are possible in international media? And secondly, what are the opportunities and constraints to moving toward more dynamic and nuanced coverage? Considering how to improve coverage is so important for many of the reasons we touched on in the last hour. And um, from my experience, the images that dominate mainstream media affect policies, the path of urban development, and ultimately people's lives. And with all the new tools at our disposal, our generation, um, for many of the students here in particular, has the potential to reconsider how we tell these stories. So to start the conversation, I wanted to share one example with you of how an alternative model of journalism and social media in particular can change coverage. To begin with a standard approach, here's a clip from Reuters on urban protests in Colombia on International Workers' Day a few weeks ago. Chaos in Bogota, Colombia. Labor Day marches turned violent after 70,000 protesters clashed with police in the city's main square on Tuesday. Authorities used tear gas and water cannons to disperse the tens of thousands and detained around 70 people. One person was reportedly injured during the clashes. Elsewhere, May Day demonstrations were more peaceful, but no less passionate. So here, all we see is chaos, violence, and arrests. Bogota looks like a war zone. We have no idea who is marching or why. And in contrast, we can see how the same urban protests were covered in a publication called Global Voices. Uh, I don't know if many of you have heard of it, but Global Voices was founded in 2005, and it's an online network of more than 500 volunteer bloggers and editors who curate citizen media from around the world. So these authors bring together and make sense of conversations already going on on the web in, on blogs, YouTube, Twitter, etc. And volunteers translate content into more than 30 languages. So in this article, we learn that workers were protesting a recently signed free trade agreement with the US, high unemployment, poor salaries, um, outsourcing, and public pension reforms. The article cites a blog that points out marches in most cities were peaceful and the, uh, the military intervened in others. The article links to YouTube videos interviewing marching workers and it shows tweets translated from Spanish. One says, I marched for millions of people that don't have dignified work. And another laments, communists again, ruining the city. 
Colombia no longer looks like a war zone and the protests no longer seem irrational. The article spells out what's happening there specifically, the reasons for protests, and the perspectives of people who were there. And the events are covered in the first place because people in the region were writing about them. If you had just read the New York Times, you wouldn't know they had taken place at all. So this is one example of what I think is constructive reporting and an alternative model of journalism. And I hope we'll continue exploring ways forward in this discussion. Thank you. I'd like to welcome our three panelists. We're going to start this evening's discussion with Jamal Osman. Jamal is an award-winning independent journalist and filmmaker, and he focuses on East Africa. He's the recipient of a number of awards, including most recently the Journalist of the Year Award for a collection of his films on Channel 4. His portfolio of work on Somalia received the following tributes. His knowledge has enabled him to tell stories that most journalists would struggle to reach or understand. And Jamal's investigative expose of the corruption of aid programs in Somalia was heralded as brave and powerful. Sue Parnell, in the middle, is an urban geographer in the Department of Environmental and Geographic Sciences at the University of Cape Town, and she's also director of Cities Lab at the African Center for Cities. She's currently the Lieberhume Visiting Professor at UCL's Development Planning Unit, and her teaching, writing, and research attends to issues of poverty reduction, urban environmental justice, and local governance. Her concerns are also activated through her alliances with several local NGOs in South Africa concerned with poverty alleviation, sustainability and gender equity. And Scott Rogers is a lecturer in media theory in the Department of Media and Cultural Studies at Birkbeck. His research interests include urban politics and public culture and especially its constitution through the media and processes of mediation. In 2008, Scott hosted a workshop on media practices and the political spaces of cities entitled Mediapolis, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, The Architectures of Media Power. Without further ado, Jamal, over to you. Whichever you prefer. I'll just talk. Sorry, thanks for your kind comments. I don't prepare anything, so I'll just speak from heart. <laughs> uh, I think journalism, uh, one of the first lessons you're taught is good news is not news. So that automatically rules out uh, one of the things you are thinking in terms of how media coverage, uh, whether it's in the West or across the world. Uh, so journalism, uh, could be argued sometimes, uh, including me, uh, morally corrupt. <laughs> uh, and I myself, in a, a tricky situation, having come from Somalia and Africa, I grew up there, uh, I associate more with Africa than, I, than here. I've lived here for 12 years, but I see myself as a Somali, as an African. Uh, and working with a British media, with the Western media, uh, that puts me in a difficult uh, position. And I just want to talk about a little bit uh, about the difficulties I face as, a, as an African, as a Somali journalist. Uh, uh, because the, the key question is how, what alternatives are there and how could we overcome? Uh, and we'll hopefully give you some examples in my own experience. I think the key thing 
whenever I go to an editor, his uh, attitudes, they have certain views, they come from a particular background, and they see those places from a narrow perspective. You go and uh, pitch a story to them, and they will tell you, uh, if you can get this and this and this, I will commission you to do that. Uh, but if you can't, then I'm sorry. And journalism, you think it's about going out there, finding out exactly what's happening, and coming back might be all, relaying that to uh, the wider audiences. Uh, I'm not saying every editor is like that, but most of the editors I have met or seen uh, will give you some sort of uh, an application form thing and say, you tick those boxes and I'll commission you to do this story. Uh, I remember last year uh, I met an editor and I he approached me and said, would you like to do a story about the famine in Somalia? I was covering that quite a lot. Uh, and I went to see him and he, I said to him, what would you like me to do? And he said, I'd like to look at three particular areas. Uh, one, security. The refugees who are fleeing the drought, whether they have security or not. Uh, corruption, uh, and uh, he said uh, whether uh, the long-term plan is uh, uh, something that is being done on the ground. What's the long-term plan in, in order to avoid famine and drought? Uh, and he said if you can go to the Islamist control areas, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Somalia, it's, it's complicated, but there is a group called Al-Shabaab which is linked to Al-Qaeda who control part of Somalia. Uh, and I said to him, okay, I'm happy to do that, but will you be happy to publish or show whatever the result is? And I always ask those questions to editors. And he said, uh, yes, I think so. And I said, what do you think then about what in your views or within your own media organization, what do you promote? Because every single media has a particular views of the world, whether they are left or right or something. And he said, we, we like, we, we, the kind of things we promote is uh, long-term sustainability, self-reliance and everything else. Uh, and I said, the Islamists promote that as well. So you are in agreement with them on that particular. Uh, and the other two issues, security-wise, it's well known they're very good, they have a harsh justice system, they chop hands and legs, so nobody uh, does anything silly or prime, everybody is straight. Uh, and I said security-wise, they seem to be one of the best in Somalia. And so, in a way, he was in agreement with Al-Shabaab, the Islamist, and the first thing he said is, I mean, I cannot agree with these evil guys, sorry, I can't do this story. Uh, and I said, but you wanted to do this story. I would go and talk to the local people. That would, that's what I think would come out. And he said, no, I'm not going to do sorry. So it, it shows you sometimes journalism, you think is, they find out some sort of information and uh, pass that information to the public. But because these editors or journalists have certain points of view, that is what they will always accept as a story. They will not accept 
uh, saying good things about Islamists, for example, for example. They will not accept that. They will say, no, we're not going to do that. So I think one of the big issues is attitudes and perspectives and views and how they see things. And also, I remember doing another story in uh, Yemen. I won't mention who I was doing it, and we, it was a documentary. We were following a British-born 20-year-old man to Yemen and seeing Yemen through his eyes. That was the initial idea. And we were traveling through Yemen, Sam'a, Adan, and other places, and this boy would like certain things about Yemen. And the director producer would say, no, no, we cannot say that, sorry. We want to make you a hero, so don't please say that. So he was always focusing on the negative bits mm. of Yemen. Uh, I remember uh, some of the things he said was about how women dress. It is, it's different, Adam and Sama. Uh, but he said, yeah, I like the way they dress. I think in the West, uh, women should dress more moderately. He was born here and grew up, and that was his views. And uh, the editor said, no, no, I don't think the viewers would uh, like you if you say that. <laughs> uh, so you just have to say that. So in terms of, uh, I don't know how many of you have been to Sana, it's, it's old, it has an old Sana city, which is beautiful architecture and everything else. Uh, and he loved it. He said, uh, I like those beautiful buildings, I like this. and." The editor will stop the camera and say, just think about it. And then he will put words into his mouth and say, you cannot say that, sorry. And I was constantly ha constantly having an argument or discussion with him and back in London and saying, but this is not how you should be doing it. You want to see Yaman through his eyes. Obviously, he will have bad experiences and good experiences. You should just tell that his story because that is what you are trying to say. Uh, so there are many examples I can give you in my short journalism experience whereby, uh, and we're talking about the Western media in general, Western journalists or editors uh, want to do certain stories in certain ways. Uh, and I think the only way that would change is uh, uh, its attitude. If journalists think as human beings, we are part of this uh, global community and we share a lot in common. We share more than we uh, differ. Uh, and if they focus that and try and do stories in a humane ways, I think they can create more understandings and, and do better stories in, in that sense. Uh, in, in my case, uh, wherever I, whenever I wanted to do stories, I mainly work with Channel 4 News, which is different, slightly different to other British media, because they give, they give me the flexibility and the freedom to do my own stories and how, what I found, which I don't get when I see other editors. They often say, this is how you should do. Uh, and the way I look at it, because I am from those countries, East Africa and Somali, I am one of them, that's how I see myself. And that helps, I think, because you are covering your own people, you are not covering people who are others. And uh, before I 
I know reporter stories, but before I became a reporter, I was working with them as a producer. Uh, and again, same thing, I always have an argument with the reporters who say, we should get that picture, uh, but not that. We should get that, but not that. We should do that, but not that. They are picking and choosing because they have a particular story in mind. Uh, so I think it also helps if you know the country, if you know a bit about the country and the culture, and you care about the people you are reporting from. And I think that is uh, missing in, in the Western media. Uh, but having said that, I am hopeful uh, that some of the local <coughs> people are taking up uh, to social uh, media to fight back. There was one interesting case early in the year where there were two grenade attacks in Nairobi, and the CNN said, I don't remember the words, but they exaggerated and said, Nairobi is on fire or something. And the Kenyans took to Twitter uh, to counterattack the CNN, and the CNN, within hour or two hours, they realized the, the tweet that, uh, I think they said something like counter CNN or something, it was trending, and they have to apologize on air and say, sorry, we made a mistake. Uh, so I think people are fighting back with, through the social media and uh, uh, I'm sure that will uh, continue and will uh, improve. And, uh, I think that's it. Great. Susan, so, um, I mean, I think it's quite a well-structured panel. We have a journalist, an urbanist, uh, and a media specialist, and we all come in to this question, I think, in quite different ways. Um, when, when I was asked to, to speak, I thought, well, mm, I'm an urbanist, I'm not sure I know and think very clearly about media and media issues. And I realized that, in fact, for quite a lot of my academic life, I have spent an inordinate amount of time going through news clippings. I'm probably the only person who spent a lot of time at the Watford, uh, out in Watford going through the archives there and has read in, in detail decades' worth of news clippings on cities. Um, and so I'm acutely aware of the relationship between how the media depicts the urban and the academic project as it's written up. Um, just as I read the press quite avidly, particularly for work on African cities, to see what the press is actually saying. Um, and there's absolutely no question in my mind that the organisers are, are, are spot on. There is an absolutely critical relationship and we need to be quite critical about the construction of that and to be particularly at a time when the media itself is in such crisis, as indeed is the academy, that we, that we're careful about it. So, so that's the context with which I'm coming in, and in a sense my, my register is a bit different from other people's because I'm less concerned with the lived urban experience and more with the city as a whole. Yeah? Um, but to answer the very specific question of, of kind of what can we do and what can, might we expect to be done differently, and I think for me the most pressing thing is that we change the volume of material, quality and focus, Bill, we've talked about already, but the straight volume of material that covers particular cities of the world. And I, I'm an Africanist where the problem is most acute, but if you think that we've got nearly a billion people living in Africa, almost half of those are about to be living in cities, and there is almost no coverage of cities outside of Lagos, a little bit on South Africa, and when it's in the British press, it's only a very particular take on what constitutes South African cities, and a little bit, perhaps, on, 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 on Nairobi. The, I think we had a very interesting discussion earlier about the Egyptian coverage, which is not about the city. Mm -hmm. 
actually. It's about a social movement. It happens to be on a stage that is the urban. But the understanding of the city itself is really, really embryonic. And so if I have to put forward some of the things, I think one of the things which is very exciting from a journalist's point of view, and this is beginning, I think Jamal makes the point very eloquently that the editors really shape this agenda. And for editors, I think one of the things that they have to hear is that there are, are, there are increasing audiences interested in stories about cities, and there are increasing audiences that are interested in cities about Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And I've been fascinated and a little distressed, I might add, to see the coverage that a Monitor report can get or an OECD report can get, partly because it goes into the business pages. Okay? So it's whether it's the best coverage and the most extensive coverage, albeit the coverage that's deeply problematic, has been in the Financial Times and in The Economist. Um, in any of the other serious papers, really, really lagging behind. So I think the fact that we've got opening audiences, we want to draw attention to that, and those are business audiences, they're investors as audiences, they're potential professionals as an audience, people who are going to go and be engineering consultants or what, banking consultants, retail uh, interests. But they, they have an appetite to read, as indeed do migrants um, who are living away from home, and, and those numbers are, are increasingly there. And of course the fact that, that the media is now so much more global in the sense that you read it online mm -hmm. means that that audience is wider. And because the audience is wider, we can ask for more, and we should be articulating that actively. So what are we going to ask for? <laughs> I suppose it's the question, if we're going to do it differently. And, and I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think for me the role of the media in the urban is, um, is not uniform. And what you ask for really does depend on the purpose for which you are, are, are looking. So for me, there's a, a kind of a, a formative role, if you like, which journalists play in shaping people's understanding of cities. Okay, now, and, and that's true of the discussion that we were having from our, our earlier panel, where whether it's, it's uh, print media or whether it's film, where whoever gets those images into the minds of the public as, at large is creating a consciousness of something. And so journalists describe for us the places that, to which we cannot go, or the places from which we've come and are not present in them at, at any moment. So how they describe those things is really important. And I was fascinated with the example somebody gave right at the beginning about the scale of the slum removal. And scale, for me, is one of the things that journalists don't get very, do very easily. So, so places like Bonn, ex-capital of Germany, population 300,000, um, get described in capital city terms and major settlements like Dakar don't even get a mention with many, many millions of people. So, so there's no sense of the weight. You know, and, and so you, you see it in, in other kinds of media coverage where you get a dissonance between, you know, tragic as it was, 100 people killed in an earthquake in Christchurch in New Zealand, where we get detailed coverage of what it means for the city in terms of its reconstruction, as opposed to massive, massive. Uh, events which, which, which devastate livelihoods of millions of urbanites, which, which don't even get mentioned. So, so I think redressing that scale and, and kind of bringing it to your human awareness of if that was where you were from, would you have expected there to be coverage of this event? Um, and what kind of coverage would you expect to have been? So that's one thing for me. Um, I think 
the use of maps and visuals enables that, but we've had some of the, the, some of the critiques and maybe, maybe you'll uh, pick up on, on some of, of what we know in terms of, of the bias that, that that represents. So the formative role offers some opportunities, and I think it literally is a case of educating the global public about what it means to understand where the major centers of urban settlement are. Then there's a comparative role um, that I think the media engages in. And, and here I think it, somebody asked the question earlier, somebody sitting in the front here, about the, the invisible city, the, the European city that never gets talked to. And I think journalists have got a really important role here of engaging in urban debate in comparative perspective. So, for example, uh, the recent local government elections, um, which have just taken place in London, could easily be contrasted with local government elections in other kinds of places. Uh, and the comparison isn't always favorable, I have to tell you. Um, there isn't a single election monitor who would feel okay about the standards uh, of, election, of, of going to vote in a UK election where nobody produces any form of identification, <laughs> where there are all sorts of opportunities for a whole range of things, which the British government insists on through its electoral monitors elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So some comparisons. You could do it on that, you could do it on migration. I, you can hear I'm a South African and I'm always struck in the British media at the discussion about waves of migration. Think about the, 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 in, the sort of movement in of, of people from Zimbabwe. If you think about the numbers, the millions of people who have moved into Greater Johannesburg from Zimbabwe, and you contrast that with what the UK has had to absorb, it just puts lots of things into, into to perspective in terms of what a city has to absorb. The debates about housing that have been going on recently. I mean, there are a number of those things. So a comparative perspective, I think, is one of the ways that one might be able to situate, relate, contrast in complex kinds of ways to build a comparative consciousness so that you aren't always just doing Oslo versus uh, Edinburgh. Um, and then I think for me the most important role of the press is, is perhaps in the serious press, um, which is under threat. Um, and under threat I think in particular kinds of ways, and this is a very difficult pitch to make for that reason. But it does seem to me that the serious papers have an extraordinary responsibility in setting a, an agenda around a global consciousness that is appropriately urban and appropriately attuned to the 21st century, which is urban. And by that I mean that those journalists we would legitimately expect to be as equipped to deal with and discuss urban issues as we expect from business journalists to be able to deal with the stock exchange, uh, you know, currency, volatility, any of the big things which, which impact there. And I think making that case has something that we haven't done. So we, we have journalists who have particular expertise, for example, in agriculture or business, and yet the urban sector is probably more important to our global well-being, our global economic well-being, our social, our political, all of those kinds of things, and there are very few people who have that expertise. And the difficulty, I think, for the serious papers in places like the UK, which drive the serious media agenda. Okay, so, so I think there's a, there's a dissonance here. You know, in, in London, you cannot only speak to a UK audience if you see yourself as part of the serious press. And what that means is that journalists have to provincialize 
the European urban story in order to give the full weight to whether it's the Chinese urban story or the Indonesian urban story or whatever it is there. So there's a recalibration, I think, that needs to, to take place, but which I think is potentially exciting um, and one can engage with in, in particular ways. And to do that, um, they, I think there are lots of ways that they can do that. They can engage like science writers do, where they actually draw explicitly from text. They don't necessarily have to be going out and doing the story. It's not a substitute for the kind of stuff that Jamal's talking about. They're different kinds of stories. They fulfill different sorts of niches. But it does seem to me that as we think about reconstructing that relationship, there are lots of exciting entry points uh, that we can contemplate, and I'll leave it there. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks to the organizer for uh, setting up this event uh, and pleased to be invited to speak here. Uh, what I'm going to do in my inaugural, uh, initial remarks is um, to kind of step back from a couple of key questions that the organizers um, sent us in advance of this event. Uh, and in a sense, I want to kind of speak around some of the conceptual issues that I think are related to the questions. Uh, and what I'd like to do, uh, really, is to question the question itself. So I kind of want to be a, a little bit of, uh, maybe a bit of a troublemaker, but hopefully it will contribute to the discussion. Uh, and I'll start with question one, and then perhaps that'll lead us to question two. So uh, the key question one that we were sent was, what alternative understandings of cities in Asia, Africa, and Latin America are possible in Western stroke international media? Now, the first thing I'd like to question about that question is, what do we mean by in media? Uh, from the, uh, many of the um, uh, contributions so far, as well as a lot of pre-conference materials, I see words such as portrayal, narrative, image, frame, uh, stereotype, uh, coverage. Uh, and so this suggests to me that when we say in media, we mean in media content or in media uh, representations. Um, and the claim I would like to make, and my focus is really going to be here on uh, the news media or uh, journalistic uh, media, is that if we're interested in the relationship between media and cities, uh, between journalism and cities specifically, in the global south, we should not primarily concern ourselves with the analysis of uh, representation of those cities. I'm not for a second claiming that representation is unimportant. But what I want to uh, suggest is that we also think about how we might pry open uh, the black box of, of journalism and its relationship uh, with cities and imagining cities. So if you think about what is it possible to say about cities in the global south, what things are said and are not said, what, what are, uh, those possibilities are directly linked, I'd, I'd like to say, to the conditions of possibility that uh, underlie practical journalism as work. So, you might think, for example, um, about what gets taken for granted as natural in journalism practices. Uh, one, a journalist has a nose for a story. What does that actually mean in practice? Um, uh, how are the construction of narratives actually bound up in what journalists do? What are the unwritten rules of journalism? Uh, there are, of course, the specificities of particular news organizations. Uh, Susan just mentioned the serious papers. Uh, the interaction of journalists with non-journalists. Um, the cultural and geographical milieus in which journalists pursue their work and how that implicates what they do. Uh, and of course, uh, and we hear a lot about this with uh, recent changes in media, the, the technolo technologies, the platforms, um, the genres, the mediums through which journalism work is channeled and through which, of course, uh, 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 presents constraints and possibilities for what can be said about cities. 
Um, so what I'm trying to say is we might think about journalism as a type of urban practice, as a practice that is performed in and in relation to cities. So if we say, for example, in cities to begin with, we of course should probably recognize that virtually all or many uh, of journalism practices are notably concentrated or situated in urban settings. Um, international media, one of the things we're considering in this um, uh, session, well, international media, of course, as we all know, it's not free-floating in the clouds, it does not you know, rest uh, uh, in a satellite above the earth, but of course it is situated in very particular cities, and you know, um, uh, I think we could start to uh, name wh where some of those locations are. Uh, and this sort of, I guess, to me, brings up a question of uh, thinking about of, of the, the sort of habitus or the urban habitus of journalists. Like, uh, how, are, how are journalists sort of uh, based in particular urban environments and how does that relate to uh, the way they think about cities, even if it's not the city in which they are situated? And that brings me to the second piece, which is in relation to cities. Um, because cities, of course, are also symbolically important for the conduct of journalism. They have symbolic value for the journalism field. Journalists compete with one another to present a view of the world, they compete with other spheres of the world, academia, government, uh, and the city is uh, symbolically important for journalists in doing that. Um, but it varies, uh, and whether it's um, categorized as about the city as such, or, and I think one of the things that was picked up in the um, pre-conference materials received is often it's categorized as an issue of transport or environment or housing. Uh, so it varies whether it's, it's, it's uh, categorized as, a, as an urban issue as such, uh, but I'll come back to that. Uh, now, coming back to that first question I mentioned, um, I'd like to again question the question, but a different part of it. Uh, why concern ourselves with Western international media? Uh, this is obvious. Of course we should, because uh, these are the media that speak to and for centers or you know, sites of global power. You know, that power might be projected politically, uh, economically, militarily. It helps constitute a global public sphere. I know these things, and I'm not contesting that. But I think we also might critically reflect on the seemingly natural relevance this seems to have for us. Maybe I'm overstretching by saying us. Maybe I could just refer to you know, either the communities of either Western-based or internationally mobile academics, journalists, professionals, us, who are concerned about getting our representations right. Um, the context for this actually is over in a bit in urban theory. Uh, many of you have probably read Jenny Robinson's book, uh, Ordinary Cities. Uh, to encapsulate the argument of that is basically her, her argument is that all cities across the world should be, we should consider them ordinary, that you know, we should not begin our analysis of cities by first classifying them as global or western or third world or uh, developing. Uh, and you know, kind of in, within that argument is a critique of the way we think about urbanism or urban theory, that we see it through a western lens and then in so doing we kind of miss the real diversity of cities in various contexts around the world. Um, and it's here that I kind of see a parallel. Our expectations about media uh, can also be seen through a Western lens. Uh, the example that's mentioned often now is a social media Arab Spring. The, the relevance and significance of social media is c considerable, we shouldn't deny that, but it was very much the Western media that the significance was accorded to social media, produced of course out of Silicon Valley in the US primarily. Uh, but there's another side, which is, you know, uh, the anthropology, uh, anthropologists of media have been claiming a very similar argument for a long time, uh, 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 a similar argument to Jenny Robinson, which is that 
um, in seeing media through a Western lens, uh, as looking at Western media as the model for how we should understand media, we are ignoring the, the real diversity of possibilities of, of what media might look like uh, in, a, in our world. Okay, uh, this sort of comes to the second question, uh, that, uh, which I want to talk about very briefly. The second key question we were given were, what are the opportunities and constraints uh, to progressing to a more dynamic, nuanced portrayals of these cities, cities in the global south? Um, I guess I'd like to just suggest that we should augment our concern, first of all, for Western or international media uh, with attention to the diverse localized expressions of journalism and media in the global south itself, of course. Uh, and we should be careful not to sort of implicitly dismiss the localized expressions of, of, uh, of journalism or media organization or, or other forms of media practice in these places as uh, less important. Uh, if we're interested in dynamism and uh, nuanced portrayals, we shouldn't just be thinking about portrayal, we should be thinking about the dynamic, nuanced uh, existence of journalism in these contexts. Um, we also don't seem to know much about the nature of journalism in cities in the Global South. Uh, some, some do, but I, I haven't heard much of it talked about here. Uh, is it up for grabs? Uh, is it established and, and, and locked up by elites? Um, I think at the interface of urban studies and media studies, there's not a lot we know about that, or we haven't talked about it anyways. Uh, the very last thing I'll say is um, uh, that uh, one of the things that was mentioned, I think I've already said this, but one of the things that was mentioned and what was said to us in advance was kind of that um, stories in the international media often don't ad adopt an urban frame. And this was presented as problematic, but I'm not so sure it's that problematic. I mean, it's kind of uh, understandable in a sense uh, uh, that stories, if you think about the way that journalism works, it is understandable that sometimes stories are not presented with an urban frame. Uh, uh, we should also question whether an urban frame is necessarily always the best way to portray issues happening in cities. I mean, an urban frame can be very disempowering and, and, and sort of encapsulate issues in a way that doesn't really bring to light what's actually going on. But I'd like to suggest that if you think about the localized circuits, localized expressions of, of media and journalism in the global south and cities in the global south, I think an urban frame com becomes a little bit more, um, um, a sort of carries a bit more weight in my mind because then we are talking about the sort of generation and perpetuation of, of a sort of uh, uh, urban public sphere yeah, in, in these cities. I'll leave it up. Thank you very much. I can see that we are getting quite short on time. So I'd just like to recap um, three potentially viable alternatives or directions and open it to the floor um, to involve the audience. Jamal spoke very much about the potentiality of shifting primacies and I guess the question here is to what extent the audience and explicitly social media can challenge the hegemony of the editor. Sue spoke about um, altering consciousness or kind of recalibrating and in particular the, the role of contrast and comparison. And my question here really is what's the role of the academy in that? So how do we get out of ref mode and journal writing and book writing that only 50 people ever read and how do we actually develop an articulate and political and public stance that's more publicly available? And then thirdly, um, in response to, to Scott, I wonder whether journalism is in fact an urban practice on the whole. Um, journalists might be based in cities predominantly, but before this, are they based in corporations? Um, and is that their kind of true nationalism? Um, and if that is the case, or is, is it the case, 
what are the real alternatives for organized and or collective um, systems to challenge the cooperation, whether in the global south or, or elsewhere? Um, can we open that up and get some responses from the floor? And if not, responses from the panel. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to kick off. I'm, I'll be provocative. <laughs> um, perhaps I should put a caveat in case I'm personally misunderstood. Um, I do do quite a lot of applied activist work. Um, so my otherwise very academic answer um, should perhaps be positioned against that. Um, I think academics shouldn't have to write for the press. I think that, in other words, the, the current emphasis in the REF to push for impacts, not all people who produce knowledge are good at distributing knowledge into the public arena. There are some extraordinary human beings who do it wonderfully well, and it's fabulous when you get public intellectuals who are able to do that. But most academics do it very badly. Um, and it seems to me that one of the things that we actually need to do is we need to recognize that there are some quite specialist skills and journalists should be reading academic work and putting it into the public domain. It's not that I'm saying that there should not be academic work in the public domain. In fact, quite the contrary. What I am suggesting, though, is that getting the angle, getting the spin, getting the information out actually is quite a distinctive skill and we, we dilute and particularly when you get into the Global South, you're asking the same very, very small cohort of people to make the political connections, to organize the field work, to undertake the research, to write it up for high-impact ref-based academic publications, to write the story, to talk to the media, to do everything. It's crazy. And I think actually we need to fight back. Um, because the expectations of impact actually detract from independence, academic independence. Jamal spoke about editorial, the, the question of the pressure from editors. But once you know that you've got to write a story that's going to have impact, the way you write the academic piece shifts. And so for me, we actually have to uncouple that. We actually have to say to academics, your job is to go and find out what the intellectual story is, what the original contribution to knowledge is, the blue sky stuff, if you like. Yes, do it in a domain that has interest and relevance and etc. But don't do it all. Mm. Responses? I'd be, I'd be very interested just looking at the faces that are looking back at us in the audience, and there's a kind of age profile here um, that engages very explicitly with social media. Um, and I'm interested in hearing whether this is something that's part of your day-to-day -day communication with mates, or whether you really feel this is something you can take forward in, in a political or in a public way to actually make a voice be heard. And, and I'm impressed particularly with the Polis blog that Katya has been working on, etc., and the kind of how it raises the game and the stakes that it has in, in really wanting to communicate um, in a very different way to the conventional press forms. Responses from the floor, please. Uh, 
Thank you. Uh, this is not a very well articulated thought, but um, I picked up on Sue's comment about needing to change the volume of um, reporting on African cities. I, I've lived in Dar es Salaam and I've been following the news very closely there through Twitter because most other news outlets wouldn't say anything about what's happening there. Um, but at the same time I'm thinking what are the limits of social media then? I remember just before Christmas there was a big flooding that was right after the Philippine floods and over 4,000 people got displaced in Dar es Salaam during that time but it wasn't covered in media because the Philippine floods were a lot bigger and I know a lot of uh, Twitters they were reporting it to BBC and others trying to come through these have your say things. I'm wondering how do you balance social media with the overflow of information that you get through news outlets and and if you would get that news item through then how do you get people to read it with all the other information that's out there? Katya, would you like to to respond, and um, I know that you actively blog in in a political and a personal way, and uh, it would be interesting to get that perspective. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I have the answer to that um, problem, but I think one of the re reasons, or what I was trying to say, partly about Global Voices, is that it's really unique in that it curates what's going on, and I think there are other services out there like Storify and Demotics that are now sort of curating social media or picking up on what people are talking about and making it digestible for traditional news outlets. So I think maybe there's more of a role for people to, like Global Voices, um, to pick up, to make sense of the information and maybe in creative ways um, bring it into more traditional media. And there was um, one of the editors from Global Voices was in a panel here at LSC about a month ago and she was sort of suggesting also the ways that traditional journalists use social media shouldn't be just sort of limited to going on Twitter, you know, maybe finding a quote or just kind of pulling from it and taking, but um, everybody would sort of, the journalism would be um, better and the story would be more nuanced if you actually cultivated relationships maybe over a long period of time with your sort of, with people blogging in your kind of region or specialty so that you could get deeper stories over a period of time rather than just grabbing things and saying you're being social media savvy just because you have a tweet in the story. Yeah. Sue, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah. But I'm not, I'm asked, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't have blogging and tweeting and a whole lot of extra emphasis on new forms of social media. What I am saying is, is that we shouldn't confuse the emergence of new forms of communication with the imperative of honing and reforming old forms of communication mm -hmm. which occupy different roles. Um, that it's, it's not either or, it's both and. Mm -hmm. um, and. And for me, the difficulty is, is that in the energy, and it's generational, look at the room, the energy that exists for new forms of social media, what we're missing is that the existing forms of media are in deep and profound crisis and they are unable to deal with the re urban realities of the developed world. Okay, I'll give you an example. We, we talk about social media as a sort of critical form of new democracy and democratic action, and that's true. 
And yet, in a city like London, the most important fiscal decisions that are being made, whether it's about the Olympic Park or any other mega uh, project, have been taken out of the control of local authorities, and that escapes political commentary. Okay. So that's not democratic, and that's not in our democratic consciousness because the journalists are not reporting on it, and they're not reporting on it because they don't have the expertise to report on it. So they haven't registered what's going on. And that, to me, is not going to get picked up in a Twitter or a blog or any of those kinds of things. They're separate realities, and we need to actually look at those things mm -hmm. in parallel. When you take the kinds of things that are going on in the cities of the world where we have these major imperatives, which require both treating because there aren't enough journalists there, so we've got to have reporters on the ground, but we've also got those in the cities where the cities are being built, so the big financial decisions, the big climate decisions, the big energy-based decisions, the big emissions decisions are being made at this point, and they're being made without any public discussion. And that stuff, to me, seems to require a different kind of journalism. And then, again, to inform that, what I'm arguing is, is that you need a much longer, more scholarly, more reflective kind of view, which is, I suppose for me, would be a third set of kinds of activities. And we need them all. <laughs> there was someone in the audience. Hi. Um, looking at the title again, I have a, a question, sort of a, I was wondering what the panel is thinking about the relationship between the national and the urban. Like, how do our media portrayals um, of cities in the global south, how are they actually shape our portrayal of this, the countries they're in, or even whole like continents? There's one. Uh, can we take those two questions and then respond?
Um, I was just thinking of uh, the opposition of the two types of media in some way, and I'm not sure this is a full idea, but it's more like a reflection. But I was wondering if, like, they could also kind of, uh, like, be linked and inform each other. I mean, with the whole financial crisis. I mean, before that, not a lot of people my age would, like, read financial news. But I think one thing that started getting them interested in it was actually, like, the general interest that started being created also through blogging and realizing, hey, there's a, you know, this is something of concern and it's of concern to us young people too and everybody's talking about it and posting things through social media and I think that might have actually then influenced the demand for actual financial news. Like a lot of my friends now actually do read newspapers about what is happening on financial markets and they used to not do that. I'm not saying that they do now just because of reading it through blogs, but I wonder if, because it's maybe more accessible, it could be a step to then like a more traditional form of journalism, which is more in-depth. And I don't know if, you know, um, without the more accessible type of information, would people do the jump to more traditional type of media? It's just a reflection. I don't know if it's the case or not. So I think those are going to be our three closing questions. The first, how national portrayals influence urban portrayals. The second, the distinction between the medium and the content. And the third, between how you really create a momentum. Okay, well, uh, what I, I'll do is uh, I, I just want to make a, a kind of a, one response to, to some of the things I've been hearing, and then I'll come back quickly because mm -hmm. it's kind of connected to the question you asked, uh, Susie. Um, just, I thought the question, I, I, I know a lot of people are mentioning traditional media, which I think is good. I mean, that there's not, you know, the sort of starry-eyed hyperbole about Twitter and all of that, which there's been a lot of recently, and um, I think it's a bit dangerous for us to, to place so much hope in these types of mediums. And I think the issue of just being, you know, just thinking that a medium is going to have some, some sort of magic uh, that's going to solve everything is, is, is a bad thing to think. Um, but some of the ways we've talked about is in-depth uh, and traditional. But I think you know one of the things we should consider is uh, what the issue is in a sense um, one of whether we are like how do we think about authority to speak for others, um, and do we, we you know it seems like in a sense there is this acceptance that you know we we do want some some sort of area of of, of maybe a profession or or, or sort of a, a practice where where people do speak on behalf of others ethically and uh, through certain procedures and and uh, and with a certain kind of commitment. Um, and I think it's just important to think about that and, 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 and not necessarily use like, traditional, maybe that's what traditional journalism approximated. There may be a lot of things uh, that we've seen recently uh, with the Levison inquiry that are, are not you know, happening in quite that way. But you know, it might be a question I think that we have to think about is uh, authority. Now, why that connects to is journalism and urban practice? Um, I guess, um, and, and, and be given that so much, of, you know, these, so much of journalism is based in corporations, well, I think the first thing to say is that um, journalism, virtually all forms of journalism, including amateur journalism, is commercialized. I mean, it takes form and uh, takes place in commercialized organizations, primarily. There are exceptions, uh, and social media. Well, these are commercialized platforms. They are using your um, uh, effort uh, to make money, right? So, I mean, it, there's, there's no way of getting away from that, but I don't think that that means that that is a priority, that those, that political economy then therefore determines everything that happens after it. Um, and that's where I think it becomes important to think about what is the nature of journalism and, and are there certain conditions of journalism or broadly speaking journalistic practice which are autonomous from economic kind of logic. Um, and I, I think there are, but I think 
where, what's at threat is when you have an over encroachment of economic logic on what ends up being considered valuable or, or newsworthy. So I mean, I think that we should just not, not definitely not fall into the trap of thinking that economy determines everything, but also accept that you know maybe you want to have a field that we accept has certain authority to speak on certain matters on our behalf. Very briefly on the national question, I mean, it's fascinating. An anecdote, um, I was part of a very large team um, putting together a design for a large donor program on local government capacity support. Um, and we put in a component to educate journalists to report on local government, uh, and national government vetoed it. Um, and there are a number of reasons why they do that. Um, they don't, the idea that Johannesburg has greater prominence than South Africa is very threatening um, in a number of ways. Plus, local government is a site of intense accumulation, and the last thing you need is a bunch of journalists to know what they're doing sniffing around. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can briefly say, uh, I think Twitter is a useful thing, especially for journalists. And if you are trying to influence uh, what journalists do, I think, uh, first, it, it's important to understand how it works and the people who make decisions, who decide what goes out are editors and they tweet and they are human beings. If you criticize them or say that's wrong or you should do that, uh, they tend to listen, in my experience. Uh, so in, in the immediate term, I think, one thing you can do is uh, if you see something you don't like on television or newspapers, you can tweet to the editors mm. and say, that's wrong, mm. that's wrong, that's why do you do? And they get facts wrong. Sometimes they are naive, sometimes Susan mm. uh, They have no expertise. Everything is timed, quickly done. Uh, so I think that could be easily done. If you're passionate about a particular subject, mm. you can tweet around and say, everybody should tweet. And editors, I'm sure, would uh, mm. do something about it. Uh, mm. Thank you very much to the three panellists and in addition to that thank you very much to Katia and Carrie for organising all of this.